I'm sitting there in Starbucks because I built the whole thing from a coffee shop. Seth Godin signs up. And I say to myself, I'm going to ask Seth Godin if his list is authentic because I don't want people to be spamming using the service. So I write to Seth Godin and say, you know, could you tell me a little bit about your list? And he writes back, I'm Seth Godin. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What up, party people? It's your boy, Matzabal, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Gary Levitt, the founder of Mad Mimi. They were acquired by GoDaddy. This is part of my Israel series when I was out in Israel. Gary is an Orthodox Jew. Yes, the guys that wear the cool sideburns called peyotes, among other things. The conversation starts out with some really interesting experiences about him being an Orthodox Jew, and then we dive into how Gary grew Mad Mimi. Three main things you're going to learn is... How did Gary go from the Berkeley Music School to being completely broke, living on the floor in a tiny apartment in New York, to creating a hugely successful company, Mad Mimi? Two, what's it like to be acquired? How does it happen? I'm still waiting for some phone calls. Like, what's the behind the scenes of getting acquired? And number three, what are email best practices? I know you're curious. So if you ever want to send emails and get in the inbox, increase your open click rates, all that stuff, we got some advice for you. We talk about those three things and a bunch more. Enjoy. Let's go back to the beginning. You were born in South Africa. Maybe you can start from there. Sure. I was born on a farm in South Africa. My nearest friends were about an hour, hour away from me in the car. I ended up going to school on the farm area where I was uh, pretty much the only uh, white kid. I was right at the uh, beginning of the end of segregation apartheid in South Africa. So it was a pretty interesting time. What do you remember about the change with the apartheid? My doctor's office stopped having two rooms, one for white people and one for black people. Seriously. I left shortly after that, you know, right after high school. I came to Berkeley Music School. Did you grow up religious? Because obviously now you're an Orthodox Jew. Yes. I kind of felt like I was born a Jew and everybody else is proud of who they are. So I figured like, I'm going to start wearing a kippah on my head. You know, I'm still a jazz musician in New York and also functioning as a busboy during the day. Do you remember the first day that you wore it out? was kind of weird. And certainly the first day being around other jazz musicians in the space, it alienated me from some people and it drew me closer to others. But yeah, it was certainly a, an interesting feeling being highly self-conscious at all times, meaning how are people perceiving me all of a sudden now that I'm like wearing an outward sign of like being who I am, being who I was born. Did you notice any racism or any people like, hey, take that off? Not really in New York so much. New York's pretty liberal. So it was definitely a thoroughly encouraging process, just learning more about who I was and my culture and my ethnicity. Definitely the highlight was experiencing Shabbat. What about it? Disconnecting for one day a week, disconnecting from my phone and my computer and disconnecting from everything. You know, the interesting thing about disconnecting when you have to is very different to disconnecting when you want to. When you disconnect when you have to, comes sundown on a Friday afternoon and I have to disconnect. doesn't matter what I'm in the middle of or what I'm doing or seemingly emergency issues are arising, I'm disconnecting at this point. If it wasn't almost legislated, I don't think that I would ever have the self-discipline to actually do so on a weekly basis. So for that 24, 25 hour period, focusing on family, focusing on friends, food, eating, drinking, all from the perspective of disconnecting and then connecting to a more spiritual side of myself and others, 
certainly enriches not only that part of the week, but the rest of my week as well. What did you notice about your life before and after having the disconnect? I think I overall became happier. My perspective had time to reset and regain composure so that when I went into the week, my perspective was new. That didn't exist before where one week ran into the other without a break. So that newness was highly impactful. How did your parents respond? I would wonder if I told my parents, hey, I'm now a modern Orthodox Jew. I'm going to wear these outfits and I'm going to be doing these types of practices. I think they'd be like, well, I'm glad you're doing this, but it's a little weird. My parents were living on the farm. I was living in New York. So I would see them once a year. Or the lack of proximity sort of allowed me to sidestep those questions and those issues because I was pretty much on my own. My parents did have a question when I got engaged to my wife two weeks after meeting her and then, you know, getting married a couple of months after that. I remember calling my dad. It's like, you know, I met this girl a couple of weeks later, we were engaged, you know, I met her in a religious context and she's from a Hasidic family. So it kind of works that way. What most people don't know, and I've learned on this trip to Israel is that it's actually common that you meet someone and in generally two to three dates, you're engaged. You basically go, no go. A lot of Americans and, or Jews there, we always thought that the Orthodox have sex through the hole, like they have to have the sheet and then you put your penis through the hole to have sex with your wife. Have you, have you heard this one before? I've definitely heard that one before. Yeah. So that's what I've been told my whole life. It's not a thing that we talk about every week, but I've heard it. And then today a rabbi is like, no, I, of course I'm supposed to touch my wife. Why would I want a sheet? That's silly. How do you think Judaism and being more of a religious observant Jew has affected your business life? I would say that I'm always very self-conscious of how my colleagues perceive me, potentially more so than in a regular context where I would be conscious of how my colleagues perceive me from a position of wanting to be a nice guy, wanting to be liked. I function these days from a perspective of when I'm looked at, I'm looked at as an Orthodox Jew and I need to bring a good name to all Orthodox Jews. Therefore, when it comes to business ethics, treatment of employees, I try to be as conscious as possible with how I'm perceived, having a strong focus on business integrity to be more practical, paying people on time, respecting people's needs, and also trying to reward people. These are general things that any good employer does. Try very hard not to have any freakouts or outbursts or you know frustrating moments at people directly. So... So what were you hoping would come? You'd help you be a rich artist in New York? No, I wasn't even really searching for money. I just wanted to be darn good. Why? Don't all girls like a really great jazz musician? There it is. Did it get you, babes? Did you start meeting more women? No. And the less women that I met, the more I figured I had to practice, but it just got further and further away from that reality. You must have great hands. Well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So you get out of Berkeley, you're an awesome musician, not getting laid whatsoever, and you move to New York. What were you hoping would happen and what happened? I moved to New York and I was hoping that I would get gigs, but all the gigs went to the upright acoustic bass players. So then I lived in a storage warehouse on Atlantic Avenue. In order to get to the fridge, I had to step over the sleeping German guy in the kitchen so that I could access you know, food. So you're a busboy, you found Judaism, you started connecting with people, you're making more money in the job. Then what happened? I needed to get out of the restaurant space. You know, the restaurants working at night and the people you engage, it's not always the healthiest situation. 
So started trying to write commercial music and starting to send emails around to creative art buyers, people who would purchase potentially music for an ad or whatever. And I made these emails, kind of hacked them together using some Mac software that I bought for like 50 bucks. And somehow a message got forwarded to the Oprah Winfrey show. She asked me to produce a film score for a show, at least to provide a demo. I did a demo, they rejected it, but they asked me to produce some general music for the show. So I did about 110 pieces of music for Oprah. Until today, they play on the show and that gave me the way out, provided me the way out of the busboy scene. How much does someone get paid for that? I got paid $6,000 for 110 pieces of music. I got royalties. So over the years, ended up being a bit more than that, but that's about what it was. It was about $6,000 for 100 pieces of music. How'd you feel when you finally got that money? It was the most money I'd ever made in my life. So wow. It takes time to make 100 pieces of music. You know, each of those pieces of music was like one and a half minutes, two minutes. But yeah, I, until that point, that was the largest sum of money I'd ever made. Now I have a wife and a child, $6,000, and trying to think up a way to get out of the commercial music thing. So I started producing this silly idea to make a website for musicians to be able to market themselves. So I raised $10,000 from friends and family, really my father-in-law. He invested in me and the idea crashed. That was my first lesson in software development. So I kind of went back to a problem that I have myself rather than an opportunity that I saw out there in the, in the world. I perceived that there was a great opportunity in the music world to create a software application or solution for the music world in this particular way. It cost me $50 to get this like lousy Mac application to do mass email marketing, like send a whole bunch of pretty looking, good looking emails. I couldn't track the responses. MailChimp at the time was crazy expensive. Like I'd have to pay like a hundred bucks a month to use MailChimp, Constant Contact as well. None of these products spoke to me. They were all very like enterprisey feeling. In 2008, life in the email marketing space was like that. So I thought like, well, let me make an email tool for me that will make me happy to use it. Like how I did my email marketing to figure out how to build my little music company. And that's how I went about it, solving a problem that I myself had, ignoring what the market was and doing something that would make me happy to use. The Mad Mimi product became email. Mimi stands for Music Industry Marketing Interface. Mad Mimi, having become an email app now, I could actually cut out half that music industry stuff, which was a pile of code and a pile of features, and just focus on send and track an email. Did you have any customers at this point? Because it sounds like you've been building and you're hoping to grow a business or make a business. What were you hoping would come out of it? You can create like a very large software company? No, I was hoping to make a software company that would provide me a simple salary for my wife and I to exist, to live and to live in a you know a little apartment in New York. Customers were, I was doing some emails for some other friends of mine who asked me to do pretty looking emails for them. So I kind of considered them customers. They're paying me like a hundred bucks to do a bunch of emails for them. So there were no customers of the product itself. The product took a bunch of months to build and then I released it at the earliest possible opportunity where I could only send about 5,000 emails a day to a single list before the, the software started to go crazy. I mean, now it sends about probably 90 million emails a day through the product for some of the world's biggest companies. But back then I remember really sitting in a state where it barely could send anything. 
Who was your first customer? Do you remember that? Yeah. My friend Shmuel from New York, who had a company called Drumtails, where he supplies interesting drumming activities to schools around the New York area. He was my first customer. How much you charge him? I think I gave him a free account. I was begging people to sign up for a paid account. The first paid customer who I didn't actually know paid five bucks and canceled like two hours later. The next day or the next week, one customer signed up. And then the week after that, another two people signed up. And then two or three and four and paying 10, 15 bucks until one day I made the $699 plan. There's no way I could support it, but it was there. It was available to buy. So I'm sitting there in Starbucks because I built the whole thing from a coffee shop. Seth Godin signs up. And I made this thing to myself like, I'm going to ask everybody about their list. Seth Godin signs up. He uploads 100,000 people to the list. And I say to myself, I'm going to ask Seth Godin if his list is authentic because I don't want people to be spamming using the service. So I write to Seth Godin and say, you know, could you tell me a little bit about your list? And he writes back, I'm Seth Godin. No, that's all he said? Yeah, that's all he said. I said, okay, fine. I authorized the stuff to send. Eventually, his big company called Squidoo started using Mad Mimi. That gave me the impetus to hire some engineers to make our emails be able to send faster. And, you know, interesting people signed up and just sent emails to support Dr. Dre. There was a bunch of email support, me interacting with like Dr. Dre. Do you remember Dr. Dre? Was his email like, yo, Dr. Dre 94 at Gmail? Yeah, basically it was totally chill. It's just like any other customer. You started this thing, you've cut everything out, you put it out there, you got a few friends, they send emails and word of mouth, I'm guessing, or word how of were mouth, that's out it. Of- I was all focused on making a product that was lovely to use. Um, the product had a bit of a more feminine twist rather than the incumbents, which were very masculine, very ROI driven sales, this and that. I took a position where like, don't worry, you don't know about email, we're the people for you. Lots of really superb customer service and hand-holding, sensitive, sweet engagement. I was always doing customer service myself. The company took a long time to progress, but eventually it became profitable and I was always focused on building profit, not necessarily building growth. Never needed money, took a couple of loans in the beginning, but eventually the company was self-sustaining and for years provided you know, very big returns to all the investors as dividends and then eventually the sell to GoDaddy. How did you persist in the beginning when the first you know, year or so, it sounds like there was no money coming in? There was no money, but my costs were very, very low. I had an engineer, a contracted engineer, who when I couldn't afford him, he stopped working. I was basically just signing on through my iPhone to reset servers on my phone. I learned a little bit how to code myself. I did all the design, all the front-end implementation, the way I saved money. I did everything myself, except the complicated back-end stuff, which I needed a bit more education for, which you know, I hired somebody to do, but also my costs were $1,500 a month was my rent and my food. That's what I had. And eventually it was $2,000 a month that I was making and eventually $5,000 a month and so on. What were some of the more challenging times while running this? There were some fundamental points of failure in the business being blocked by Gmail. Sometimes where we get kind of hijacked by a bunch of Nigerian spammers getting blocked by giant block lists, basically took down the business server failures, getting screwed by hardware providers. One of our database engineers by mistake erased all our data. That took 36 hours to get back up. How did you get through that? Just kept pushing through like the block lists and things like that? You just figured it away? Begging, pushing, persisting. Where was the moment where you recognized this might be bigger than the simple business you were planning on? It wasn't a particular moment because the business was so incremental growth. 
there wasn't one particular moment. I just remember the number of investors that started contacting me, asking me about investing. I was like, investors, what the heck are you people? You know, at some point when I had enough money to get a mortgage on a house, I realized like, okay, this is a real business. But again, you know, I was always in the trenches. What are some tips when people are sending emails that people should know? The most important thing about sending emails is to keep it really short and easy to make so that you are not overwhelmed the next time you've got to send an email newsletter. Keeping emails short is really also easy to read on the side of the person receiving the email. Having a single call to action, don't include in the email like a million different links and a million different calls to action. So just send a simple message, one paragraph, maybe two, with a big fat button in the middle saying, this is where I want you to go. Simple graphics, keep it short and send them frequently. You know, four times a month is also fine, even more. So you want to keep in touch regularly. Yeah. Short, frequent emails that are easy to make and easy to read. What does the future of customer or email marketing communication look like? The number of communication channels is certainly expanding. Bots and AI are playing more and more of a role in communicating with people. At the end of the day, the more human warmth is invested in the relationships through all the different channels, the more successful your communication will be. No matter how many bots, how many channels, how many whatever come and take over, having a really strong human connective dimension in your customer communications is really going to beat them all and it's not going to be overrun by any automated processes. Walk me through the GoDaddy acquisition. Very smart guy, Stephen Aldridge, contacted me out of the blue. And we basically communicated for a good four or five months until GoDaddy decided or at least determined that Mad Mimi had a really good fit for the company, both on the customers that we had and also the NPS score that we got, which was way higher than all the other guys. Because of that synergy, it was a natural fit for GoDaddy, who has a big and beautiful small business customer base and who's moving really in the right direction for small businesses from accounting to bookkeeping to email to website. And their product line is, since their change of ownership, really moving in the direction of high quality consumer applications for small business. Were they straight up about it? I've never been acquired. Do they just say, hey, we want to buy you and that's the first email? Or is it, hey, we want to get to know you better? Yeah, we want to get to know you better. But, you know, said to God, daddy, well, you don't have to do anything. Maybe we could do some sort of partnership. You can test out if the Mad Mimi product is good for your customers. And then, you know, they sort of expressed, well, we're interested in acquiring a company, not partnering with a company. What really tipped the scales is the decision that GoDaddy was going to go through it. And then basically due diligence started, which was months of arduous financial analysis, software analysis. Uh, they really know how to do due diligence. It was a lot of work. Now that you, you finally got this tremendous amount of money, I'm assuming. Like, how did that change your life and how you felt? It's allowing me to make more mistakes <laughs> with new businesses that I'm starting because now I'm more liberal with how I spend money. But having a lot of money hasn't really affected my work ethic or my perspective in both growing spiritually, religiously, and also in business, trying to make more products and learn how to make businesses faster and better. A lot of people certainly are aspiring to have what you have. Start a company, bootstrapped, had a few investors or friends and family, and eventually get acquired by a large company for a lot of money. You know, as you're starting your new companies or talking to, let's say, John, who's starting his, what can you tell him from uh, your experiences? Keeping scrappy, 
not reading too many articles online on how to do things, but doing things the way you can using the resources that are around you. You can do anything. You really can. There are no rules. When it comes to creating a business or getting an idea out there, there really are no rules. And because of that absence of rules and truly believing that every small business owner or any guy who's thinking about starting something. What did you do the day that the acquisition finally went through? I decided not to celebrate at all. What I decided to celebrate is I celebrate those times where I have the opportunities to do good things with my money, to give the money away, not receiving the money. So I don't celebrate the receiving of the money. I celebrate the opportunities that I have to do something good with the money. And the moment I give those things away, that's when I celebrate. That's awesome. And what are you excited for for next? So I'm working hard on my new product, Yala, social media space. I'm learning a lot about social media, Yala, Y-A-L-A. Awesome. Gary, you're the man. This is an outro written by David Kelly, the lead editor for the show. Boom. Mission success. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Gary. If you like the chat, go ahead and leave a review on this podcast. Five stars? Four stars? Negative one stars? It doesn't matter. I just love hearing from you guys. Next, go say hi to Gary at yalabot.com. Y-A-L-A bot.com. Third, text someone you love them. Yo, dog. I want to have a pool party with you this weekend. Speedos. Have a beautiful day. What's your favorite animal?